No, nothing. Throughout the course of this eight weeks, I'd like to weave together as much as possible the mornings, the mornings practices, all in Shamatha, the afternoon, on the four immeasurables. And as I mentioned, I think it was probably the first night, the common ground is attending, attending, a whole sense of watching over, caring for, looking after. And so when we're entering into a shamatha session, if we do so in that spirit of loving-kindness, wishing ourselves well, we'll be well and happy, we'll find the causes of happiness, that's a nice gentle approach. And we'll avoid what arises so easily, especially in people living in the modern world, and that, that is this kind of this judge. I'm not doing it well. I'm not talented here. I'm really terrible at this. I'm sure I'm one of the worst. Probably all of you think you're one of the worst. If you don't, you may not be. So to be just gentle, just really gentle, and coming in, just wishing to, to, go, to do something good for ourselves, and then by transforming, purifying the mind, be able to be of much greater benefit to others. So the shamatha itself can be an expression of loving-kindness. The loving-kindness can be one more way to develop stability and vividness of attention. So good. So shamatha actually can be a method to achieve shamatha. Achieve shamatha and loving-kindness. That would be very nice. Right? And so a lot of, we call it dovetailing, a lot of merging of these two practices. Good idea. Good idea. So this afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. We'll follow a very classic strategy or procedure, method. We begin with ourselves and then just gradually extend outwards and go outwards where it's the easiest. It's where it's easiest. right? And that is for those people for whom when we just bring a person to mind. I think for all, if there are any, there must be some other grandparents in the room. Grandchildren are a really easy target. Okay? Just bring your grandchild. What can you do? You know, just the image comes up. You start smiling. Right? Just the affection, the warmth. That's loving kindness. Because especially with grandparents. I mean, what do we really want from our grandkids? You know, I think it's really, in terms of, without having any Dharma practice per se, the love of grandparents for the children is pretty sweet. Because it's, it's about as unconditional as it gets, you know, without any Dharma practice. So just that. that just that sense of, of fondness, affection, just the sheer appearance, kind of brings some gladness, that sweetness to the mind, and wishing well, wishing well. So whether it's a grandchild, since most of us here are not monastics, then no problem. And even the monastics, I think, there's really no problem. Um, you know, to a brother, a sister, and so forth, to family members, whoever really you naturally feel spontaneous affection for, that sense of endearment, the sense of as soon as you look upon the person or bring the person to mind, having that sense, this person's really lovable. So find such a person, preferably more than one. And gradually we'll cultivate the ability to look within, look upon ourselves, and feeling, oh, I'm looking on a lovable person. <laughs> Imagine that. It's a bit of a stretch. But that's exactly it. That's exactly what the Buddha was talking about when he emphasized the importance of loving ourselves, of really having that sense of affection, warmth, that simple well-wishing for ourselves, feeling that we deserve to be happy, no matter what we've done, no matter what our faults are, there's a person there who would deserve to find happiness. So, if we can really homogeneously develop a sense of loving kindness for ourselves when we're in a good mood and a bad mood, when the mind is wholesome, when the mind is unwholesome, 
We're not developing loving kindness for mental afflictions or non-virtues of any kind. Right? But to a person. So, insofar as we can cultivate this sense, genuine of loving kindness for ourselves through thick and thin, ups and downs, when we're attractive, not so attractive, then that's a good start. So, let's start. Find a comfortable position. Exactly in the spirit of loving kindness, this wishing well, this aspiration that we may find happiness and causes of happiness, as a step in that direction, let your awareness descend into and fill the space of the body. As you set your body at ease, in stillness, and in vigilance. Settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, utterly surrendering all control.
and set your mind at ease. Very deliberately and happily release all concerns about the future and the past. Let your awareness come to rest in the reality, the only reality, of the present moment. Now bring to mind once again the question. What would make you happy? In terms of your hedonic needs, having enough to eat, clothing, shelter, having all of your material needs met. Very important. And beyond this hedonic well-being, what is your vision, your own vision, genuine happiness of what would truly bring you a sense of fulfillment and meaning. Expand your imagination. Be a visionary. With each outbreath, arouse this, this heart, this mind of love and kindness, which is an aspiration, not an emotion, not a feeling, but a yearning. With each outbreath, arouse the yearning. May I realize genuine happiness. May I be truly well and happy.
with each out-breath. Let your imagination move into the realm of possibility. Imagine realizing such well-being, such happiness here and now. Now bring to mind someone who is very dear to you and attend closely. Attend not just to the image, the appearance that comes to mind, but attend to the person, him or herself, by way of images, by way of your memory, but focus on a sentient being who here and now, like yourself, wishes for happiness. having their own vision of flourishing. And with each out-breath arouse the yearning, may you, like myself, be well and happy. May you find the causes of genuine happiness.
gauge out where the mass in this person finding the joy and the satisfaction that he or she seeks. the appearance of this person fade back into the space of the mind and direct your attention to another, to another person or it could be a community, a cluster of people or even other sentient beings and practice in the same way with each out-breath arousing the yearning you like myself like my dearest friend, may you find the happiness you seek. May you cultivate the causes of such well-being.
and let your attention then rove, rove at will, to see who comes to mind, and with the awareness that each one, however they appear, however virtuous or unvirtuous their minds, each one seeks happiness, wishes to be free of suffering, just like ourselves. And with each out-breath arouse this yearning. May you, like myself, be well and happy.
Nothing. Any questions or comments, insights, anything coming up in practice? Yes, we'll start with the Gachinka. Gachinka. It's coming. It's coming. I'm wondering a little bit about the practice which you did just now. I think I, uh, I can, after a while I feel it's a little strenuous in a way. It's mm -hmm. hard to mm -hmm. uh, relax with it. And then I wonder, should I just let it all go and just do some shamata just to yeah. find the ground again is one question. And oh, also, why don't you take one at a time? Yeah. Um. So I'd like to, now that we're into already the second session of loving-kindness, define it, give it the, give the Buddhist definition. It's quite widespread, it's not sectarian. And that is loving-kindness, again, is not an emotion. In English, love can easily be regarded as an emotion. But of course, love co covers love for chocolate and love for motorcycles and grandmothers and children, pretty much anything, right, which is often just attachment. But metta, or maitri loving-kindness, is an aspiration, and naturally, when it arises, it comes with an emotion. It's not cold and aloof, you know, like some kind of mechanical computer program. But the essence of it really is an aspiration, and the emotion comes along for the ride. And if one doesn't know that, it's very easy to focus, first of all, on the emotion. Oh, I want to feel loving. Ah, and I'm good. I like that. I am feeling loving. And then it's just, you know, just one more hedonic pleasure. So, with that in mind, the defini definition of loving-kindness. The, in the Tibetan tradition, they have a very Indo-Tibetan, going back to Indian Buddhism, the very first line of the liturgy, which should be much more than a liturgy, it really is a guide for meditation, is Semjin Tamjit Dewadan Dewi Gyodan Demba Gyuchik. May all sentient beings, may we all, find happiness and the causes of happiness. So that's what it is. It's looking at the fruit, but it's also with wisdom. And this is where we, in the very first breath, we must bring wisdom in. It's not silly. It's not superficial. Just like a child. Oh, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a cowboy. Okay, that's very well. But, well, where's your astronaut's training? You know? So we're not children here. I'm just wishing for nice, happy things like Santa Claus is going to come and drop it on us. But as we aspire for it, then also with wisdom, identifying what are the causes. So now this is realistic, right? So once again, the initial emphasis is so important, and to linger there is loving kindness for ourselves, right? But this is not just having some ideal of what a good life would be like, what it would be like to experience fulfillment, but also really the aspiration to cultivate the causes of happiness, right? Well, one of the causes of happiness is to have peace of mind, right? And so as you're arousing this, if after some time, and, and your experience is very common, so it's not that you're doing something wrong, right? But you feel a bit strained, it's getting a bit thin, it feels a bit contrived, a bit artificial, or just overly conceptual, sounds like more a visualization exercise. So, I think what I said probably was not entirely off-mark for a lot of people. Completely normal. It's expected, and it's been normal for centuries. It's not just that we're some weird, unloving mutants in the modern world. So knowing that, then we can just come back. If this is an aspiration for happiness and the cause of happiness, and it starts with oneself, then let your practice be for a little while mindfulness of breathing as a cause for finding, first of all, peace of mind. You can't just turn on bliss, but maybe you can gradually turn on a sense of inner serenity, of looseness, of comfort, relaxation, 
and so that's a cause of happiness. Now, in one of the Buddha's discourses, I think this is so important, I loved it when I read it, he said, there are two ways of cultivating love and kindness, and I think he was referring to the other of the three immeasurables as well. And one is through meditation. You can go off to a cave, you know, where there's nobody for a hundred miles around, and you can cultivate loving kindness. And you can, because you're still connected with beings all over the place. Who was it? I'm trying to think. His Holiness was asked. Dalai Lama was asked. And I think it was somebody by somebody who has seen the, the film footage of the little five-year-old Dalai Lama, the little Tuku, taken away from his whole family, up in that cold winter palace. If you've ever been to the Patala, you would not want to live there. It's cold. And it's old. You know, and he's up there on the top of the roof. He's like 200 meters from the nearest children. And he sees, and there's one footage I've seen of looking down there and seeing normal ch children ice skating. And you can imagine poor Dalai Lama. Oh, no ice skating for me. No friends. No just having fun. I have to be Dalai Lama. One can imagine. So I think some people have felt sorry for the Dalai Lama. Interesting exercise. And so someone asked, with that in mind, and then just that whole separation and the kind of the isolation of being the Dalai Lama, you know? Um, someone asked him, do you ever feel lonely? It's a very nice personal question. Do you ever feel lonely? Whether he's a child or at the age of 76, he's always a Dalai Lama. He's always a Dalai Lama. And he said, never. Never. He said, I always feel connected. Another story from Dalai Someone else, I can't remember who it was, but I know it's true, true story. Somebody asked the Dalai Lama, is there anyone you regard as a peer? A peer. Your level. No? You might think, well, maybe Desmond Tutu, some other Nobel laureates, Mother Teresa, Jesus. Maybe they don't have to be alive. Did I say Desmond Tutu? Is there anybody you regard as your peer? And his answer came back very quickly. He said, yes, everybody. Right? So I think those two statements are really the same statement. So with that in mind, with that in mind, then we come back, come back, and just practice loving kindness for ourselves. But our whole approach, and this I really kind of request you, that your approach for the whole week, now that we're just starting off, that start off with good habits. You know, oh, many of you have practiced for years already, so maybe there's some bad habits, maybe good habits. But for this eight weeks, start off with a good habit, and that is beginning every session. Let it be an expression of loving kindness for yourself. So, I'm coming back to what the Buddha said. He said there are two ways of cultivating loving kindness, and one is in meditation. So again, you could be totally isolated, and having that sense of complete interconnectedness with all sentient beings, even if you don't see a human being for, for years on end. And some yogis do. And I've known some of them. I know Anila has also known some of them. People, these really hardcore yogis, you know, totally up by themselves. Genshamba Wandu, Kiran Kinsa, you knew him, didn't you? Yeah. When I came the second time, back to Dharamsala in 1980, he knew me a little bit, not much. He was a yogi's yogi. Oh, incredible yogi. He lived like 35 years in Riju. Unbelievable. I knew him a little bit when I lived in Ramzala the first time. Then I was going off to Switzerland for almost five years. And then I came back and I was going up, up right there where he was in the, in the hermitages up above Ramzala. 
He hadn't seen me for like five years. And I checked around, is it okay to knock on his door? And he said, yeah, you can knock on his door at lunchtime. Right? So I knocked on this yogi's door. He's, he's like a hobbit, isn't he? Quite short, round face, like Odo. Is it Odo? Ono? What is that? Oda. Like, very much like Oda. Oh. Like that. And so I knocked on his door. He opened the door, and it was suddenly like he's seen his long lost son. You know, like, it was like this happiness just suffused his face. So much happiness, so much kindness and warmth. But he's genuinely happy. He said, Oh, Chapa Kyasna. Ya Pesho. Ya Pesho. Sucha Chaga. Chaga. Oh, I felt. But I knew that there was nothing special about me. There was no ego in that. There was no way to feel, oh, I'm special. That was not, does not come to mind. Does not come to mind. It was that I was a sentient being. You know? And that warmth, that loving kindness, it just, just flowed so spontaneously. This to my mind is absolute proof that it's completely possible to develop very genuine affection, loving kindness, compassion, even as a solitary yogi. Because I've seen it happen. He's a wonderful example of that. On the one hand, so there it is. On the other hand, the Buddha said, well, that's one way of doing it. Another way to cultivate loving kindness, that it really goes into your bloodstream, into your mind stream. It's not just a practice you pick up and put down, like an iPhone. I'm practicing loving kindness. Okay, finish with that. And do something else. You know. But it just gets into your current. He said the other way is to behave in a loving way. To behave in a loving way. You know, as you see people crossing uh, out in the street and they're passing by, you engage with the staff here, the cooking staff, that just all of your engagements are just attending to, attending to each one with the eyes of loving kindness, attending to each one with the wish, may you be happy, may you be happy. You know? And so, enacting it, and embodying it, that's another way to cultivate it. So you can go from the inside out or the outside in, or you can do both. So, all of this is actually still a response to your question. And that is, if you, in a spirit of loving-kindness, practice mindfulness of breathing, you are enacting loving-kindness for yourself. That's good. That's that's metta-bhavana. That's loving-kindness practice. Right? And then you come out of that, and then gradually you can extend that to other people as well. So, the short answer is, sure. <laughs> I wait a long time before I give the short answer. <laughs> now, now you have a second. One. Yes, sure. it's um, because I also wonder a little bit when we uh, invite the images, or mm. yeah. because then it is a kind of visualization. That's for sure. Yeah, and is it? Are we supposed to kind of do it like open a room and invite one in and just you know? Extend the 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 wish, but at the same time, just you know, rest with it. I, I understand. Right? Yeah. No, this is a skill to be cultivated. It's a skill to be cultivated, and it can be looked in one of two ways. On the other hand, quite rightly, this can be considered metta bhavana. Bhavana means to cultivate. So we are we are cultivating a quality that we've not experienced before, or at least not to the extent that we may experience it through practice. In other words, extend it, deepen it. So that's a cultivation. It's like growing a flower. It was very small. Now, gradually through cultivation, it grows higher, the root system goes deeper. So on the one hand, yes, it's bhavana, it's cultivation. On the other hand, the same method, 
the same method, visualizations, whatever, can be understood as unveiling our innate capacity for loving-kindness, which is right in our Buddha nature. So nothing to be cultivated, but just almost like peeling away layers of dead skin that prevent the light of loving-kindness from flowing on. And there are many things that do that. Being caught up in Aimi mind, that's like a lot of dead skin. Being resentful of other people, dead skin. Looking at other people as desirable and undesirable objects, more dead skin. You know? And so, so many things layer it, cover it over, so the, the, the light of loving-kindness is there, but hardly anything's getting through. Right? So, in this practice, very important to recognize that, yes, although we may use imagery, that is, you bring a certain person to mind, some image comes to mind, uh, it's also true, very important truth, some people are relatively good at visualizing and some people are really awful. An old friend of mine, very serious, I mean, very good scholar, very dedicated to Buddhism. He tried some meditation, I don't know really how much he continued, but I'm leaving this anonymous, doesn't matter. But he said, I can't visualize anything. Nothing. Or the first time I ever led a meditation retreat to some hippies up in Switzerland, cowherders. They go up in the mountains and herd cows in the summer. I was leading a so little retreat for one week. We did some visualization practice. I think maybe Buddha Shakyamuni, like that. And then one person after the session raised his hand and said, I try to imagine Buddha Shakyamuni. I got nothing at all. Nothing, no Buddha Shakyamuni at all. I got nothing at all. And I sat there for the whole session. And after a long time, I saw an image of a crow fly through my mind. That was as good as it got. <laughs> so, it's just, a, it's, this person is not mentally defective. It's just that some people are more gifted than others. But this, does this mean that a person who really can't visualize very well at all, then can't develop loving-kindness? That is, is your ability to cultivate loving-kindness directly correlated and dependent upon your visualization ability? Well, that would be awful. That would be awful. That would mean this person can't develop loving-kindness because he can't clearly bring any images to mind of loved ones or any anybody else. It's just, you know, maybe very left brain, who knows what. But now imagine the same person. And you have no way of guessing who it is, so I can continue to speak on. Imagine this person, who's a very decent person, very decent person. Imagine this person's mother becoming seriously ill. Seriously ill. She's in the hospital. Maybe she'll get a full recovery, but maybe not. Maybe, you know, terminal. Is this a person's ability to wish his mother well, to really direct his loving kindness, his affection, his warmth and love for her, is that impaired by his inability to visualize? Not at all. Not at all. And so if this person is off maybe 8,000 miles away, maybe this person is in India and his mother is in whatever, in Europe, let's say, is it possible for this person to direct his attention to his mother and be, I mean, one could say offering prayers, offering aspirations, directing one's thoughts of loving kindness. May you be free of this illness. May you get better. May you enjoy wonderful health. May, may it be so. May it be so. All of that can be completely authentic. And it has almost nothing to do with how well can you visualize. So this is why it's very important if you say, if this for this person, when you're arousing this Genuine yearning, offering your prayers, call it whatever you like. What is the object of your attention? What are you attending to? So what would be the answer? For this person whose mother is ill, 
He's passionately wishing. Give his arm. You know, so much wishing his mother gets full recovery and can be really healthy and happy again as he is offering his prayers for her well-being. What is the object of his attention? His mother. His mother. That's exactly right. His mother. So maybe some images of the mother come up. Maybe they don't. But boy, he can certainly wish for his mother's happiness. So in the same way, in the same way, this is not a visualization exercise. The visualization may be helpful, but it is rather vague, or it's kind of again has no stability because uh, you know we haven't achieved shamatha yet. The image comes up, it flickers, it's kind of oh, like that. But still, when we attend to the person, the person, your partner, for example, it doesn't matter how good your visualization is. You know, your love, your care, your concern, your affection for your own partner. It's it's attending to that, immersing yourself in that, nurturing that. And you're focusing on that person and however much appearances come to mind, that's utterly secondary. Okay, well really, I'm glad you asked this question because it's going right to the core. Right to the core. We can easily get sidetracked thinking loving kindness is all how much emotion we can develop. We can get sidetracked thinking, oh, how can I visualize something really nice and imagine this and imagine that. Those are all secondary. For me, it's like uh, suddenly it comes to lots lots of images. So that's kind of also what I become sure. a little drained of. <laughs> sure, yeah. Sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming, but then you can always come back and then just practice yes. loving kindness for yourself. Yeah. So The refrain that comes up in these classic teachings by Buddha Gosa 1,500 years ago, and based upon centuries of yogis before him, was as we attend, first of all, to ourselves and arouse this genuine yearning, I find happiness. Then as we attend to another person, may you, like myself, find happiness. And then another person a little bit more distant, may you, like my dearest friend, find happiness. And then to a neutral person, may you, like this person, find happiness. And then finally to an enemy, may you, like my loved ones, may you also find happiness. So it's an extension, but it's all an extension of coming from our sense of loving-kindness to ourselves. That's really core. And it doesn't matter how well you can visualize yourself. That yearning. A friend of mine... I think she's here now. Heidi. The, um, she's not here now. She was here this morning. But she was, she's was. she been doing some really wonderful work back in Finland. I think it was she that told me this. And she's been here. She's lived here for about a year now. So she's been on multiple retreats. Very sincere. Very good practitioner. And she spoke with somebody in the business world because she has contact with a lot of the highest executives in Finland. She used to be a very successful businesswoman herself. And she was speaking with someone and she said, you know... Um, I would encourage you really envision your happiness. What would make you truly happy? Like that, you know? And this very successful man, way up there, so much wealth and fame and prestige and all of that. What would make you truly happy? And his response was, Oh, I haven't thought about that for years. You know? We just kind of get into the mode of being successful. And we just know what we need to do. I get, need to get up at six o'clock and then I need to go here and, need to, and then I have this, this bunch of work to do. I need to plan this, and then I need to go home, and then I need to have to sleep, and now I'm going to go this, and we just get caught in a routine. Caught in a routine. So, so important. It's something that easily falls through the cracks in the haste of modernity, that we get so caught in just a routine of getting by that we forget what the Dalai Lama so rightly says is the pursuit of happiness is the very meaning of life. And that takes some imagination. And not just thinking, well, what was in the past, that's going to be the future. I'm only human, what do I expect? So, 
this the very cultivation of loving kindness can be very liberating. Yes, please. And remind everybody of your name, loud and clear. Okay. Um, while I try to practice, no, your name. Ah, Nico. Nico. Nico thank you. Yeah. Everybody needs to hear. Yeah. Thank you. While I try to practice setting the body, speech, and mind in yeah. its natural state, yeah. and I get distracted very easily. Sure. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Day, day, day one. <laughs> if you told me I never get distracted, I would be shocked. I'd have to go up to my room and. <laughs> okay. no, not the case so you get distracted. <laughs> Very good. You're right on course. So um, I wonder uh, if you could explain again the object of attention. While happy it to. Yes, yeah. happy to. The settling of the body, speech, and mind. It clearly is a a preliminary to venture into, to kind of get established, to get settled before you go into the main practice, right? So to begin with, we're settling the body. That means what are you attending to? the immediate sensations of being embodied. right? So it's just that immediate awareness of bodily sensations arising from the ground up all the way to the top of the head and just being, like again, like a fragrance filling a room, like light filling a room, illuminating the sensation throughout the body and noting those areas, if there are any areas, that feel tight, constricted like that. And then, as much as you can, especially with every out-breath, releasing, releasing, especially the face big, big magnet of tension. So that's the object. And then we settle, now technically, or literally, it's settling the speech in its natural state. Now natural state, what does that mean? Okay, This this comes up a lot. Neldu Baba. Neldu Baba. What is the opposite of a natural state is a contrived, an artificial, a constructed, fabricated state. Okay? So if I'm just sitting here naturally hmm, and just responding, spontaneously, that would be pretty natural. But then if I thought, no, I need to make an impression on you. Maybe I want some money from you. I want your respect. I want you to be impressed by me. I want you to be really, oh, Alice, something really incredible. And so then I need to make an impression. Right? That's contrived. That's contrived. It's a formulation. It's something artificially created. Right? And so settling the body in its natural state, not contrived, but just rest, balance. Loose. And likewise for the speech, here, settling in its natural state, of course, to be silent verbally is not that hard. But to be silent mentally, not so easy. Right? And one, one easy, quick way is to hack. Basically, like a parent shouting at a child, if you don't stop crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. I have heard that when I was a child. You know, when the child's going to, eh, and you know, after a while, the parents just stood up. You stop crying, I'll give you something. Whack you, then you have something really to cry about. So it's kind of like tough like that, you know? Okay, mind, I've just had it with you. Just shut up. You know, until you, until the, you know, you stop the pressure, and then it goes. And so just to stop it, the pressure just doesn't work. It worked, yeah, it works for the short time. Just like intimidating a child, it works for a while, until finally the child has so had it with you, the child revolts, revolts and never want to see you again. Okay? But for the while it works, it seems to be effective. Just scare the child, intimidate the child. The child will do what you want, because you're bigger. You are. So we can also intimidate the mind. So let's not do that. But then with the breathing, 
with the breathing. Just release, release, release that energy behind this ongoing obsessive compulsive flow of thinking. The chat, 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 chat. Just oh, smiling, smiling, gentling. There's a nice phrase in the English, actually it's a term, the, the horse whisperer. The horse whisperer. There was a, there was a novel by that title and then Robert Redford starred in a movie. And then just recently, here's a movie I'd actually recommend. It's called Buck. If you ever see it on DVD, it's actually worth watching. It's really very good. It's virtue. It's 100% virtue. You have not seen it, have you? Yeah. It's, I mean, there's not many movies I recommend. But this is about the, the man on whom the book and the novel was based. And he'd had a brutal childhood. Really brutal. Really severely abused by his father. And he turned all that hurt and all the pain that he'd seen from his father and he transmuted it all into his love for horses and then engaging and then bringing into the family the owners of horses. And he would travel all over the United States as a cowboy. He's a cowboy. And just showing this wonderfully gentle, loving, and wise way to tame horses. And I watched it. I was just smiling the whole time. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's how we, have to, that's how we train the mind. That's how we should train the mind. You know? He could be very tough on occasion, especially to the owners who had abused their own horses. You know, be very tough. Never hateful, never mean, but very blunt. You know? And I saw him in the movie they showed, and the person who received his criticism, they just immediately they knew he was saying the truth. And they accepted it. And they were ashamed. But he didn't say it out of meanness. He said it to make the harm stop. Right? But this whole approach of not, that is in the cowboy movies and the rodeos, is all about breaking the horse. Breaking the horse. And I've seen it. I, I took, went to a rodeo once, and they cinched this leather, leather around the lower part of the horse, around here on the belly. So it's really uncomfortable. Really, I mean, they, they're really uncomfortable. And then the rider gets on, the, on, on top, and then they release the horse, and the horse is in so much pain that it's kicking, kicking, kicking. And then the rider tries to master and dominate the horse until it doesn't kick anymore. So you break a horse that way. And this man never did that. He would take a horse who had never been ridden, ridden and just with his words, his gentleness, his sensitivity, his real deep empathy with a horse looking into the eyes, the, the body, the whole, just this total sensitivity. He could then, within a very short time, be up on the horse and, and riding it around. And the horse was never traumatized and it was never broken. So I elaborated here because it's such a good analogy. And this is called Buck, B-U-C-K. It's worth seeing. It's worth seeing. It's all true. Documentary. So all of that was a response to whatever you asked. <laughs> <laughs> whatever that might have been. <laughs> what are you asking the question again? No, the, the object of, atten of attention. Of attention. attention. Good. When you are then settling this gentle, as if you were the horse whisperer of your breath, the hoarse whisper of your mind. When you're settling the respiration its natural rhythm, your awareness, again, like the wild horse, is corralled, contained within the pasture, within the field, the fenced corral of your body, and you're especially attending to the sensations of the in-and-out breath. This could be tingling in the legs, tingling in the arms, the belly coming up, the chest, some movement there, the sensations here in the face, the nostrils, and so forth. But just, just like the horse that's been taken from the open range. There are still wild horses in the United States. They go wherever they like, right? And then you catch one of them, and then you put it in a big pasture that's fenced, right? And so then the horse doesn't have the total freedom it used to, just wherever it likes, 
but it's not just tied down to a stake, which makes it really unhappy. No, it's got a nice green pasture and fence, you know, so it can wander around within that fence. And that's fine. So in a similar way, you let your awareness in this early phase just wander around. Sometimes you notice the sensations of breath here in the belly, some here, sometimes at the nostrils. Just let your attention rove around and just be aware from moment to moment, non-conceptually attentive to the sensations of the in-breath, the out-breath. And in this initial phase, following now the classic teachings of the Buddha, he said when the breath flows in and it's short, you recognize it's short. When the breath flows out and it's short, you recognize it's short. When it flows in long, you recognize long. When it's out long, you recognize long. So a very kind of general, a general awareness. Not really tight, not really dense, not really like that intense. It's more like knowing, oh, there are a lot of people, no, there are a few people. Without knowing exactly that's, you know, this number or that number. So it's kind of a general presence, but engaged enough with the breath that you simply notice whether it's long or short without trying to modify it. So that's what you would think. Then we settle the mind in this natural state. And the first thing there is really to deliberately release all of the hooks that drag the attention to the past, drag it to an imaginary future. Say, you know, they may be worth thinking about, but not right now. Don't have to think about everything all the time. Sometimes you can just be present. And so kind of with a happy smile, oh, for 24 minutes, I don't have to think about any of that other stuff. I can just be here. That's enough. There's no danger. I won't lose. And then letting your awareness come to rest in stillness. And then, in this initial phase, settling now the mind in this natural state, just let your awareness be present in the body. Okay? Present in the body. Now, I've not learned that particular method from any Buddhist teacher, but I did train, as I mentioned earlier, very intensely with Iyengar for two and a half months. I had a lot of personal instruction from him. This was back when he was pretty famous, but not as famous as he got later. This is 1981, very beginning of 81. And uh, he was very methodical, very methodical in his training, very stepwise. You have your, he didn't say a whole lot about ethics, but ethics, of course, yama, niyama, in the, in the yoga system, ethics, very important, indispensable. But then you go to asanas, you have a whole array of asanas, the postures, then you have pranayama, and then you have stage by stage along these the sequence of practices within the yoga tradition. And he was very insistent that you must master shavasana before you start meditating. And it's easy to think, if one has more of a casual teacher, oh, the real the real asanas are stretching here and stretching there and doing this with these strong contortion one after another and getting everything stretched up and opened up. And then when it's finished, then you go, oh, good. <sighs> like, like a little, you know, like a kid. Now it's nappy time, you know? And he said, no, no. The posture is easy. Anybody can do that. A corpse can do that. But the Shavasana, if you understand it correctly, is as demanding as any of these much more physically strenuous practices. And that is, yes, you let your body go into complete meltdown. But you don't just space out or fall asleep or just go into rumination. But rather, while you're in that posture, then your mind goes into Shavasana. Not just your body, but your mind then just settles Calmly, it is simply present in the body, and you're experiencing that asana. That's all you're doing. Just experiencing that asana. You settle your body in its natural state. Your speech in its natural state. Your respiration, your mind, all settled in natural state. And once you found that equilibrium, 
and the body sorting itself out, the pramana kind of flowing where it should be. Then you may sit up and then start doing pranayama. Now, this is a classic yoga tradition. And on the basis of pranayama, then more fine-tuning your whole prana system, then you can go into meditation. So, I had not followed that very strict sequence one by one. He knew I was a Buddhist monk uh, at the time. And I remember him. I, I would take off, of course, my robes when I'm doing inverted headstands and so forth. You didn't want to look like a banana that didn't peel. <laughs> and so, you know, for purpose, just like I'm sure you don't... That we've had some nuns here that go swimming. You don't swim in your robes. Right? And so, but he knew I was a Buddhist monk. And so he came over to me. He was very gruff. His external appearance was very stern, very stern. And he came over to me. I suppose you meditate a lot. I try. So the point there is that this is this whole emphasis on the initial settling body, speech, and mind, including in the Shavasana, full body awareness of mindfulness of breathing. It's basically Shavasana. It's Shavasana. But not just as a posture, but that Shavasana really settling in equilibrium, at ease, still, clear. And then beginning whatever you like to begin. If I give one further analogy, it would be like if you come into a great concert hall, like Carnegie Hall, or the many, many great concert halls throughout Europe, where so much intelligence and technology and so forth has gone into making the best possible acoustics for a hall, a hall that may hold 5,000 people. But they know that sometimes the performer will be maybe a violin soloist or somebody playing classical guitar or maybe a single vocalist. Right? And so you imagine, so it's not always a full orchestra with brass and everything else. Sometimes it's very, very subtle. And so especially if it's a soloist, like classical guitar, you know, they don't put a microphone on the guitar. Excuse me, yeah, they don't put a microphone on the guitar. That's really gross. Not for classical music. Right? It has to be acoustic all the way through, right? right? For, for rock and roll, that's different. But for classical, it's got to be just the pure sound itself. So imagine that you've come, you've, you've gotten a really good ticket, you know, a $100 ticket to be towards the front, and you're about to hear Andre Segovia. And you're only, so far, maybe only 50, 80 feet away from him. And so he walks on stage, this maestro, he walks on stage. Or actually, once he, what? What's his name? He was a great pianist. Extraordinary pianist. He played Chopin. I'm trying to remember who it was. I heard him. I heard him play when I was 15 in Switzerland. Unbelievable. Can't remember his name now. It's been too long ago. But in any case, like that. So, imagine Andre Segovia coming on the stage. He sits down with his incredibly delicate instrument and his great big chunky fingers. And just before he bows and then he sits down, how do you think it will be in the auditorium? How will it be in the auditorium when everybody sees his, his hand is coming up? Silence. Complete silence. Really silent. And not silent like this. Silent like, I am ready. I am ready. I am ready to hear this amazing music. That ambience. That ambience. You've gone there in a spirit of loving kindness for yourself to hear some exquisite music by a brilliant artist. Right? And with that motivation, loving kindness motivation to yourself, right? then of course you want to be very relaxed, very attentive, very still. Right? 
because you don't want to miss a note. If you want to miss a note, then just put on the CD, listen to it at home as background music. But if you pay for the concert, the concert, then the total stillness of everybody in the auditorium wanting one thing, let there be no noise. We want to hear Andres' voice. Maybe our only chance in a lifetime to hear Andres. So like that. So hear your body play. Hear the music of your breathing play. But happily, not tight. Now it's coming up. Hi. Um, I have a question about breathing. Yeah, it's good to do. Um, <laughs> Continue doing. I, when I'm fully concentrated, uh-huh. um, I find sometimes coming back to the breathing can be quite a distraction. Like I have to, it, um, so my breathing from the nose, as I put my focus here, and when I'm fully in it, hmm. sometimes, somehow, I find my it, it's, it's a bit challenging for me to stay on it. Um, other, sorry, what I'm trying to say is, can I visualize an image instead? You can visualize Mickey Mouse if you like. You can do whatever you like. But why would you want to visualize? I mean, there's nothing wrong with visualization. That's another method. I'm familiar with it. I've done it. I found for most people, the vast majority of people that I teach, one of these three methods tends to be more effective, especially when you start doing it six or eight hours a day. Um, But what is the origin of kind of dissatisfaction? When you say the reading becomes distracting, what does that mean? You're distracted Uh, from what? I think sometimes because... The breathing is shadow, or oh, yeah. like I'm analyzing my own breathing. Yeah, this is not an. If you're analyzing, then you're not doing the practice correctly. Right. Yeah. Analysis comes for vipassana. It's a discursive, more analytical type of meditation. The shamatha is never analytical. It may sometimes entail very close observation, even very penetrating observation, but it does not, by nature, get as caught up in cognitive activities of ana- analyzing, investigating, and so forth. And so there's a role for that. There's a place for that. Very important, very useful. right? But in the practice of shamatha, we'd be very patient, recognizing there's a role for analysis and all of that, probing in nature of reality. Who am I? What's the nature of personal identity? All of these are very good questions. But the shamatha is really raising another issue, and that is, in order for me to have insight into these deeper issues, the nature of mind, nature of who am I, and so forth, it's not that difficult to have some insight. Doing a Vipassana retreat, Mahamudra retreat, Dzogchen, whatever. Not that difficult. You have some insight, some kind of oh, opening like that. It's very difficult is when you have the insight to sustain it. What's very difficult, if you have insight, to be able to go back and get it again. It's more like some bright penny that pops up and then you lose it and you don't know where the penny is. right? And so it's for this reason 
that the sequence, the classic sequence, is Shamatha first and Vipassana second. Not absolutely. It's very important, once again, a middle way. But there's no question. Shamatha is the basis for Vipassana. Vipassana is not the basis for Shamatha. Does that mean that you should never practice Vipassana until you've achieved Shamatha? It's no way too rigid. But in terms of emphasis, the Shamatha is designed to make the mind serviceable so that when we apply it to Vipassana, we can gain those insights and then sustain them. Sustain them. And so that the insights may flow more and more deeply into the mind and then dispel delusions or misconceptions, false assumptions that are incompatible with the insights themselves. So, it's a matter of patience, a matter of not demanding too much too soon. It very often happens when people do practice shamatha focusing on a mental image that's been going on for centuries, not just a modern problem, that when people do this, bring to mind an image of the Buddha or orb of light, whatever it may be, finding that when the image comes and they kind of connect with it, it's not very clear, and then being dissatisfied with that, saying, that's, that's really cruddy. I want a much better image than that. And then try harder. I want a clear image. I want to really see it clearly. Try harder. Try harder. And it might get clear. Then you get something more satisfying. But you're getting there by sheer effort. And by sheer effort, that means you don't have the underlying foundation of stability, and the stability does not have the underlying foundation of relaxation. It means whatever you get, you're going to lose it. Right? And then you'll practice for a while, think you're very high, and then the retreat's over, and then you've lost it entirely. And it's just a memory. So this is why this strong emphasis, and I didn't make this up, I mean, it's coming right from the classic teachings, but I think, again, from the Dzogchen tradition, especially so helpful, is that in the practice, if we are really cultivating deeply the sense of relaxation and being satisfied, you know, from yesterday's practice. After you practice for 24 minutes, maybe done two or three even sessions of the same, at the end, you feel really relaxed, you feel mellow, you feel some kind of inner calm. Could be satisfied with that. Don't ask, don't worry about, oh yeah, but my mind was still talking, or oh, my mind still wasn't very clear. That's okay. Everything step by step. So, to learn what to be satisfied with, that's a, very, that's a real talent. Right? So in the early phases, just be content, satisfied, temporarily satisfied. That, ah, my body feels much more at ease and loose, and my mind feels more at ease, more calm, soothed. Good, be satisfied with that. That's better than the opposite. And then from that basis, that sense of looseness, of comfort, of ease, then if you find the sheer volume, the amplitude, the quantity of involuntary thoughts, distractions, and so forth, if you find that's gradually subsiding, gradually getting a bit more calm, quiet, then be content with that even if there's not much great clarity. And then as the mind develops that stability, then gradually, like this concert hall, it's become very, very still. If it's very still, and you hear one silver note of, pic of a piccolo, a very small instrument, one silver note of a piccolo, you hear it. And it's so clear. right? And why? Because the stillness is there. The acoustics are really good, but the whole auditorium is so still, so quiet. You'd hardly know anybody was there. It's like you and the piccolo musician, right? And so then you hear it clearly. So out of that stillness, out of the quiet of the mind, the inner calm, the stability, 
then the clarity naturally emerges, and then be content with that. So it's learning how to be content. And what this is a major shift. This is it's actually existential. This is not simply learning a skill, like a golf swing or a backhand in tennis, learning how to play a video game. This is something much deeper than that. And that is being able to breathe in and out for 24 minutes and to be content with breathing in and out for 24 minutes. Whereas what we're overcoming here, this is like a rehabilitation center, you know? And that is, we're coming here, most of us, I don't know, I think it's possible, with an addiction, a major addiction, for which there's no treatment out there in the world. Because almost everybody has it. And that is addiction to stimulation. Addiction to doing. Addiction to thinking and hoping and fearing and wanting and hope and all that. That always needing something to prop us up. That's why we have music in elevators. That's why we have magazines in dentist office. They're not even about teeth. You think you came to the dentist office because you're interested in teeth. How many magazines do you see on teeth? No, they're about Mel Gibson or Goldie Hawn or who's the handsomest man in the world, you know? Things that have nothing to do with teeth. And why? Because they know you can't stand sitting there by yourself with nothing to do. So they're going to give you garbage. And you say, oh, good. A three-month-old copy of People magazine. Oh, I want it. I want it. Oh. That's an addiction, right? That's not healthy. And so this is a mental rehabilitation center here where we've removed you from almost all the the things that we're addicted to. Still have good food? Have air conditioning? Besides that, welcome to your mind. This is the center of the mind, and it's the center of your mind. Yeah. So, happy days. Sorry, one last thing. For sure. 24 minutes. Yeah, nothing special about that, but I didn't make it up. I can't even remember what text, but it was a long time ago. I think it was when I was doing my doctoral dissertation. That would have been the early 90s. That I was reading these classic, classic texts from India. And I don't remember which one it is. Maybe Baba, maybe Kamalashila. I don't remember. But it was one of the classic meditation manuals. And this great, I think it was an Indian contemplative yogi was saying, when you start practicing, as so many do, they almost all say this, let your sessions be short. Don't start off with one hour sessions. That's crazy. Because who's going to be focusing for one hour? So then you, you know, everybody, I've seen this. It happens sometimes in retreats, even ones I've attended. You walk in as a complete neophyte and you say, okay, sit down for one hour. Yeah, right, especially after lunch. It's really good. <laughs> I was in one retreat center where this whole line of people, right after lunch, and I watched them, and it was like little ducks going, boop, 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 boop. <laughs> I don't know why anybody calls that meditation. It's called a nodding acquaintance with meditation. So I think that's a really bad habit. It's a really bad habit. And when I say that, well, this is Zonkaba speaking that you know you can get really bad habits and then they're hard to break like any bad habit. Right? So the great adepts from the past have said, when you're starting out, when you're relatively a novice, keep your sessions short, keep them high quality, keep as fully engaged as you can, and let it be short. Then okay, how short? How short? And so the term that came up in Tibetan is chutsu. Chutsu. Chu means water. Chutsu means measure, a water measure. Well in modern Tibetan, chutsu chik one chusu is one hour, 60 minutes. 
But I checked out that's not what it meant 1,200 years ago. A chutsu in, in Sanskrit is a gatika, a gatika, and then I did some research. That's what doctoral, doctoral students do. Did some research. Okay, about 1,200 years ago, when they weren't tuned with the West, with our with our clocks and 60 seconds and one hour and all of that business, oh, how long was a chutsu? And a chutsu, a gatika, so I just stick with a Sanskrit, gatika, is one sixtieth of a 24-hour period. One sixtieth of a 24-hour period. So you do the math. It's 24 minutes. Right? And the author here, let's say it's Kamala Shila, he said, this should be, you know, this is short. This is short. But the implication is, if that feels long, then do shorter. So in Genlam Rimba, this one, another extraordinary yogi, when he kindly accepted invitation to come and lead a one-year retreat that I organized in the United States back in 1988 with 12 people meditating for one year. He gave one week of teachings in Shamatha first, so that's now coming in its third or fourth edition by now. I think the latest title is How to Practice Shamatha, something like that. But Shamatha, he gave one week of instructions. Here's what you do for the next year. And then, as he suggested, okay, these 12 people have stopped everything just to practice Shamatha for one year. So his instructions were, oh, keep your sessions to 15 minutes, one five, and have 18 sessions each day. Well, you do the math, and it's, it's only four and a half hours. That's really not very much at all, right? But the idea was keep it short so you don't just feel sloppy and feel, oh, i got a lot of time. It's going to be a you know, long session. Or, yeah, and get sloppy. So 15-minute sessions, right? And then, as you become more adept, more familiar with the practice, you gradually increase the duration and decrease the numbers. Decrease the number of sessions each day. Okay? So he suggested 15 minutes. I think it was Kamalishila, perhaps, suggested 24 minutes. And you, you might you might wonder, well, if they um, if they didn't have wristwatches, which of course they didn't, or even clocks, not in the 8th century, then how would they know whether 24 minutes had gone by? Well, that's why it's called Chu Tzu. It's a water clock. So they'd have some little device that would pour in 24 minutes of water. And it would drip, 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 and tell. You know, because you can calculate 1 60th of a 24-hour period. Right? And so when you start shamatha, that was the suggestion. Hopefully you'll not find it so long that your knees start to ache, you're getting bored and restless and wondering, when is it going to be over? When is it going to be over? So not too long, but not so short that you can't really get into the practice, kind of get into the flow of it. So hopefully not too long, not too short. If it's too long, then make it shorter. Go back to Genlam Rimba's advice, 15 minutes. But he suggested 24. It's not too long, not too short. And then I find a little bit interesting that that's one sixtieth of a 24-hour period. And then when you achieve shamatha, access to the first jhana, oh, then it's common, common knowledge, especially in the Tibetan tradition, once you've achieved shamatha, access concentration to the first jhana, so technically speaking, then having progressed through all of the nine stages, gone to the culmination, the tenth stage, actually achieving shamatha, then really with the same, virtually no effort, you can sit down and go right into flawless samadhi for four hours, effortlessly, with no excitation, no laxity, all of your senses totally withdrawn from the sensory fields, your mind totally focused with clarity, with stability within the mental domain, whatever you wish to focus on in that domain, and effortlessly for four hours. So I doubt that it's very significant that that goes by one order of magnitude. 
because four hours is one-sixth of a 24-hour period. So you start out at one-sixtieth, and you end up at one-sixth. Now, you can probably practice longer than that. But one-sixth should be no problem at all. And then you have a mind. So then then if you want to uh, you know, go out to Vajrayana practice, Bodhicitta, Vipassana, Dzogchen, whatever, then you can just know you can have four-hour sessions. You know, the stability with clarity. And if you're really macho, then you have four sessions each day. Four hours apiece. That I call a serious yogi. So Genlam Rimpa, when he came towards the end of his life, he got cancer. A good friend of mine was his attendant. And he was a medical doctor. Barry Curzon. Genlam Rimpa was in retreat. He lived most of his adult life in retreat. He died in retreat. Hmm. And he saw the kind of treatment that could be offered, and he didn't feel it would be helpful. So he said, oh, I'll just die of cancer. It's okay. So my friend was with him in his final months. So serene, so cheerful, totally relaxed. Everybody's going to die. This is the way he's dying. So what's the big deal? You know. And even there, towards the latter months of his life, Barry Curzon told me that his, because he lived with him, as I did earlier. I lived with him for a whole year in the United States. Lived in the same house, same cottage for one year said Gela Merba's meditation schedule was to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. So he slept in. But then he'd meditate until 1 o'clock in the morning. So when your mind is balanced, then you get good use out of it. So that, when I think of, that's, that's a yogi. That's a yogi. That's where the bar should be. That's a real yogi. Yeah? And people like me, we're just still amateurs. Yeah, that's okay. There's no humility there. That's just true. Is it that's a yogi then? Okay. So how many sessions do you recommend us to do? Uh, as many as you'd really like to do. Yeah. And as you become more adept at it, you start deriving more benefit from it, then quite naturally you'll want to do more. Yeah. So keep it in that mode. Again, as an expression of loving kindness. I know when I first did my first shamatha retreat, it was so bound up in discipline. I remember getting really angry. I mean, literally, I got very angry at myself one time when I slept in until 3.45. Because I had decided I should get up at 3.30. And then I went to 3. And I just, oh. Try harder. You know? So really tough. That was not loving kindness. And then five months went by. My visa ran out. I was pretty tired. <laughs> so maintain that, that spirit of loving kindness, that sense if you come here to really do something really wonderful for yourself, you'll be the first recipient. And then Jeremy will, will be the next recipient. And then every client you meet will be the next recipient. And every person you meet will be the next recipient. Because you've transformed yourself with all of your encounters with those around you. You'll be more blessed with presence, with attentiveness, with kindness, with empathy. So good all the way around. Okay? Yeah. That's enough for now. Enjoy your dinner. I'll see you tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock.